So, all right, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Assalamu alaikum. Let's get started. Um, so, yeah, we, we recognized, um, alhamdulillah, that um, this is actually a uh, milestone. We This is the 40th surah in Project Illumin that we have covered. 40th? 40th. Four zero. So it's amazing. And that doesn't count the surahs that we've covered previous to Project Illumin, either at Asuli or beforehand. I actually don't know now what the total number is, but we'll do a count and uh, an update. But, you know, so it, it's incredible progress. Um, and it's it's really, you know, quite, quite miraculous. And I think, um, you know, I, I personally am always just struck with the an incredible amount of gratitude as we're here in this Usuli bubble and focused very intently on the Quran here and it's exciting you know when you can see the kind of impact that it has on your psychology and even the way you look at you know the world around you like here in Ohio we have this um, this um, I don't know what you call it, cicada, like uh, cicadas are these little <laughs> bugs that come out of the ground every 13 years, and 17 years, thank you, and they're extremely loud, and they're singing, and um, you know, most people, like the, the neighbors are talking about it online, and people, you know, it's, it's a thing, it's very interesting, because you walk out, and it's really loud, and, but you know, when I, when I hear this now, you know, after the sewers we've covered, I think, oh, they're doing dhikr. You know, it's a really beautiful thing. It's not, you know, a lot of people think, oh, bugs, gross. You know, why are they, you know, and, and they're everywhere and they're on all of the, you know, plants and they're dying and they're, you know. But um, I, I really honestly have not been able to look at a bug the same way since we have been covering these suras. You know, like I've mentioned before, like now I really can't kill bugs and I just ask them nicely to go away because I just, I don't know what else to do. And, um, but alhamdulillah, you know, this is like the impact of, um, you know, these the suras, and they make you very grateful, very appreciative, very aware of the creation of God, and, and, I, and I think that that really is the point of what we're doing, and, um, you know, and the miracle, honestly, of being able to be here and to do it and to cover 40 suras, like I was remembering um, the other day, you know, not that long ago, um, I think people understand that a sheikh has a lot of health issues. And it was not that long ago that he was bedridden and couldn't even walk to the bathroom without someone there so that he wouldn't fall and be a fall risk, you know, and we had to hire, you know, help. I mean, it was a completely um, miraculous change to be here. You see him on, you know, camera, you see him doing the halakas. You know, you don't see what happens behind the scenes. He's up all night preparing. You know, a healthy person can't do these things and without you seeing the impact of it. So for someone who came back from being extremely ill, I mean, I know people were, I think there were even rumors that he had passed. So it was, you know, a, a very serious thing. And, and so it's miraculous that we're here. It's miraculous that we're together and we're learning so much. And, and we cannot help but be grateful for that. And, you know, and certainly, um, you know, it, we, we've talked here um, about, you know, how the shaitan becomes your enemy, especially when you are working on things that are important for Islam and important for God. And we grow up in a very secular, you know, environment where people go, yeah, yeah, whatever, you know, shaitans, you know, Satan, whatever, you know. Uh, People don't take it seriously. They don't believe it, and that's actually, you know, the the greatest um, win 
for the devil is for people to believe that, you know what, hey, the devil actually maybe is not really around, maybe doesn't really care, isn't really as intimately involved. And same for God. You know, we learn here every single session, God is intimately involved in your life. And God knows everything and sees everything and feels everything. And I see it here with every little thing that we do. You know, when, when we turn and we ask for help with anything, God is, is there if you're willing to believe it, if you're willing to see it, and you don't like kind of um, tell yourself, no, this is just a coincidence, no, you know, this could have happened to anyone, everything is sort of random, that's kind of overblown that God is actually cares about, you know, whether you trip on a rock or, you know, whatever little thing. Um, but I think so much of your attitude of your life, um, if you do believe that there are no coincidences and that God is intimately with you, with everything that you think, you, you, know, you see, you feel, you react to, that relationship grows and it becomes vibrant and it becomes very beautiful. And, and I hope that the work that we do here, you know, for people who have a hard time like, conceptualizing that and, and really accepting it, will we'll start to believe that that, that is actually in, in fact the case on both sides, you know, on, on the good side and also on the bad side. Um, and, you know, so, you know, I, I just wanted to share, um, like, some of my, my tactics for, um, you know, what we call, we, we refer to these as devil attacks. And, of course, you know, outside of this circle, um, you know, that may seem very strange. But if you, if you say that, you know, you talk about the whisperings, right, when we say the, the, um, the surah about the wiswas, about how the devil whispers in you, and you, you reflect on your life and the things that, you know, when you're m making a decision about whether to do something or not, that feeling of, oh, should I do this, should I not do this? Is this a good idea, is this not a good idea? Oftentimes we know very clearly whether something is a good idea or not a good idea. And we choose to either ignore or we choose to, you know, to embrace. And that's, that's that whispering. Um, and when it comes to, you know, working on the Quran and working on, um, you know, the project we've been working on here, we have definitely felt, you know, the, being on the other end of being a, tar a target. You know, there are things that go wrong. There are emotions that people respond to. There are irritations and annoyances that have, you know, arisen. And I think that in, in everyday life, these are things that people have to think about, you know, how to navigate. Here, working on this project, a lot of these things have become intensified. and so. We've had the opportunity to reflect on, you know, how, how do you make a decision about how you confront a situation you're in? If you're feeling, you know, an annoyance or an irritation, do you, do you allow yourself to feel that or do you shut it down and recognize it that this is a way that the shaitan is coming in to undermine whatever it is? It could be your day, you know, you want to do something, something happens that you weren't expecting and it throws off your schedule, you get really irritated and really annoyed. Or you see your friend and your friend makes a comment that hurts your feelings and it's another irritation. It pulls you away from what you wanted to do. Um, you know, you're late, your friend is late, your, your family member, you know, forgot to put the cap on the toothpaste. You know, it could be any number of things, very tiny, very reasonable and rational, but they create irritation. It's an emotion that's opening a door to a negative feeling and a negative response and can very easily lead to a, a chain of negative events. So when we're here working on something that requires a lot of positivity, a lot of big picture view, you know, we have a choice. We can either allow that irritation to enter our hearts and derail us from something we're doing that's important, 
or we can keep our eye on the bigger picture and say, you know what, we're working on the Quran, which is up here. You know, we're talking about things that matter in terms of your life, in terms of your soul, in terms of your hereafter. We are delving deep into the meaning of the Quran. We don't have time for irritation. We have to focus on the prize because if we fall down and we get irritated and we don't like the people we're around or, you know, dealing with this issue or that issue, you're going to get thrown off the rails and you are not going to achieve the bigger picture goal. And that, you know, that is here in this, in this arena or it's in your, your daily life with whatever you're doing, you know, your job, your kids, your, you know, your, anything that's important to you, or even developing your soul, um, and how much time you spend reading the Quran. Today, I was completely consumed with stupid little ideas, you know, things I had to take care of that were part of life, and I just wanted to sit down and focus on writing my journal and my, you know, thinking about my, my surah that I'm trying to build a relationship with, and it's a struggle. You can get pulled into those little things that don't really matter, or you can choose to focus on the things that do matter. And it's an active choice. It's not a passive, maybe I'll get to do this. It's an active choice. So when people ask me sometimes, you know, how, how do you maintain like your positivity? How do you not let these little things bother you? You know, how do you um, always seem to be in a good mood? It's an active choice. And it's a choice based on thought. It's a, a choice based on prioritization and it's understanding the big picture. If I fall down here, I'm not gonna to get to something that I really care about and that God really cares about. And I don't wanna to answer to God on the final day for why I failed, because every because I let every little irritation or every little annoyance or every little unimportant thing get in the way of what was really important. So, you know, that, that was really um, something I wanted to share. And, you know, I, the other thing that I just thought I'd share was kind of a random story. Um, <clears throat> we, you know, have been unpacking the library, and I hope people have been watching on social media the amazing pictures of the transformation. People have been very busy putting things together. And this week the air conditioning failed, so I had to bring the air conditioning guy in and fix you know, one of the units. And the guy who came was the guy who, ins who actually created the entire AC system here. This is a big house, and so it, it required like a masterpiece. The guy was here 25 years ago. He built this entire AC system. And he showed up on the doorstep and, um, and he said, man, you know, I love this house. And he was one of the guys who used to do the ACs for a lot of the developments in this area. So he would easily drive, and this community, I worked with that builder, we build that entire community. I did all the ACs in those houses and in those condos, he was telling me this. And so he said this was his favorite project. He walked up into our attic and he said, this is my masterpiece. And was telling me stories, you know, that were really, you know, he was very proud. And he was telling me again, like also he had worked for this AC company for like 44 years. And then he apologized as we were talking. He said, you know, I recently had a stroke two months ago. And so, you know, if I'm speaking slowly and I can't articulate, please be patient with me. And, you know, I was just so touched at so many levels talking to this man because he's older, you know, but it's like time passes by so quickly, right? 25 years he probably never thought that he you know and, and he thanked me when he left he's like thank you for letting me re-experience this memory and being here in this house and I was like no thank you it was a pleasure to meet you and to talk to you about this because you know it's like a history we shared a history um, you know and I and I said something to him about you know I hope you get better and everything like that but 
these are the things where you feel like the passage of time, you know, he probably thought it was a blink of an eye, you know, the 25 years that passed. And being here, having a stroke, now he's older, you know, probably thinking about retirement, probably thinking about death. You know, I said to him, at that, you know, that must have been so terrifying. I'm so sorry to hear that you had that happen to you. And he said, yeah, it, it scared me. And then it, of course, made me think, okay, 25 years ago, where was I? Where were we? We were in LA, you know, now we're here and life goes on, you know, and how many things that have changed. So just, you know, to like be grateful for every moment, every, you know, and recognize how quickly time passes and how soon we will reach that point where we reach, it's the end of our life and that's it, you know? And so things like, like this project are so important because they really make you reflect on what's important in life and how you should spend your time and your energy and your care um, because we're all going to die and we're all going to reach that point. And, you know, we want to look back and be grateful for how we spent the time and feel that it was valuable and that it wasn't wasted on irritations and petty things and stupid things. Um, and I'm so grateful. I mean, just a, a little story for today. Sheikh was up all night preparing. This is a big surah. He was saying it's a very special surah. And he was walking down the hallway. I caught him walking and you know, talking to himself and looking like, oh, please God help me get through this surah. And he said to me, you know, I have this entire surah mapped in my brain and I, I really hope I can do it justice. And so I was like, yeah, like, first of all, I mean, what does that mean? To, you know, I'm not a scholar, but the idea of having an entire surah, not to mention the entire Quran, mapped in your brain and trying to struggle with how you're gonna present it. It's exciting, you know, and it's also like, it's, it's like having a, a taste of someone else's world, right? I'm like, I can't wait to hear what he presents to us of this map of this entire surah. And so, but you know, again, like, when you appreciate how much work and how much energy, you know, and one of the things he said is, I, I can't believe that, you know, what I'm gonna talk about, no one has actually talked about it this way before, I just assumed everyone would know this. And, uh, you know, I said to him, well, how many people do we know that are like you, that have read as many books as you, that have, you know, under, like read so broadly across so many different, you know, subject areas and, you know, and then read all tafsir and then to come at this, it's like you have a different, completely different tool set to understand the map of a surah that most people will never invest time to do. And so again, it just underscored how valuable this learning is for us that, you know, how many of us would even have an opportunity to understand something like this if we didn't have someone that did all of that investment, all of that research, all of that prayer, all of that work. So just again, to underscore the gratitude and, you know, um, 40 surahs man, and then inshallah, inshallah, you know, let's pray that we make it all the way to the end and, and you know, leave this legacy behind. I think it's something that's just so special and so singular. Um, so alhamdulillah, thank you for being with us. Thank you for being here. And thank you for, and ask for support and adopt a surah, please. Be part of our project. Be part of this lasting project. You know, if you, I think the idea of like sponsoring a surah where you say, okay, um, this is mine. You know, I, I every time someone reads this and benefits from it, you know, I know that I contributed to being part of that. Um, and it's something, inshallah, you know, like when we, I can't wait honestly for the day, inshallah, inshallah, where we have the entire volume, the entire set, the complete tafsir, 
touching it, you know, and if it lives on in this library forever, you know, if anyone benefits from that, to say, hey, I, you know, on the final day, that was my project. That was something that I believed in and something that changed the trajectory of Islam after I died. That to me is very exciting. And I, if you, you know, if you want to be part of that, and even if you don't have money, you want to pledge to be part of it, pledge, you know, and we'll work with you. Um, so it's it's very it's a it's a blessed um, opportunity. So don't let it pass. Is that okay? <laughs> okay, I'm really excited to to hear about the bee. Shalom. Yes, uh, as, as Grace was saying, um, Surat al-Nahl is, is uh, an immense responsibility, and I, um, uh, you know, I'm always apprehensive at the beginning of, of each presentation uh, because I'm, I'm always um, anxious about doing justice to the surah. And uh, Surat al-Nahl is definitely one of these surah that makes me um, apprehensive. Uh, I, how many of you read Surat al-Nahl? Okay. Um, so, as we inshallah will talk about what is going on in Surat al-Nahl is very, very important. And um, as what we have become accustomed to is that um, all the tafsir that exist and all the writings in Surat al-Nahl uh, do not uh, understand it as a cohesive whole. So they often will, you know, the, the, the commentary on various parts of Surat al-Nahl. Um, but the part that is often missing, or, I mean, if we want to be more accurate, would say always missing, is to understand what the surah as a comprehensive, cohesive chapter in the Quran is doing. And as we will see, inshallah, this is very important for Surah Al-Nahl. As you Notice Surat al-Nahl is not among the Hawameen. It's not among the Hawameen. But it is revealed 
shortly before the Hijra. Um, by best estimates, is that it was revealed months before the Hijra. It was revealed after some Muslims had migrated to Habasha, to Abyssinia. So, but it was revealed before the Hijra to Medina. But it came at this last critical month before Muslims make the migration and the process of transformation begins. And although not part of the Hawamim, I would even, I tend to see Surat al-Nahl more um, uh, in um, the family of Sur like Shura, uh, like uh, um, 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 uh, I'm uh, blanking out the name of the other one. Um, Zuchruf, uh, uh, like a Shura, like a Zuchruf. Um, of course, it is revealed after Surat Al-Kahf, which we have not discussed. In all likelihood, before Surat Nuh, uh, although that's not, I mean, yeah, it, it, it is, it, there's conflicting evidence, but it is very different than either Kahf or Nuh, the surah that sandwiched Surat Al-Nahl. But Surat Al-Nahl is so important that failure to understand Surat Al-Nahl um, is like a pillar missing in the Quranic foundation. Surat Al-Nahl is as we inshallah will see, it is core to any serious Muslim engagement with life. And its message is so com comprehensive and so compelling and um, so holistic that it is one of the sort of that you, you can spend a lifetime studying. Um, and I think it would yield so many lessons. The challenge with Surat Al-Nahl is that if we go verse by verse, uh, it, it would take us too long. And I don't think it's necessary. Um, so our focus has to be on the main comprehensive message of Surat Al-Nahl and on the um, the map, the intellectual map of Surat Al-Nahl. And so I will try to avoid going line by line and instead 
covering the various moving parts of Surah Al-Nahl so that we can understand the message of the Surah itself. Um, with Surah Al-Nahl, the um, for for many different reasons, um, this particular surah, I am not going to go through, uh, you know, a, a traditional method, the Sufi-esque method, and then my method, but rather I'm just going to simply talk about how I understand the message of the surah, and what it does, and as we're going along, I might allude here and there to you um, uh, how the traditional tafsir understands something, or perhaps how some Sufi-esque approaches understand something. Um, when I think it's um, it's necessary to do so. But I think you'll understand why I'm choosing this approach after you understand the message of Surah Al-Nahl itself. There are reports that, although everyone agrees Surah Al-Nahl is a very late Meccan Surah, um, there are reports that say that two or three ayat, uh, two or three verses of Surah Al-Nahl were revealed in Medina, and I think these reports are, uh, I mean, I, I think that's pretty unlikely. Uh, the, the, they're largely speculative and for reasons that I think will become obvious as we talk about the surah itself. But I, I think it wasn't revealed in its entirety in Mecca. I don't think any part of it was revealed in Medina. Uh, despite the parts that we'll talk about that that induce some scholars to say, well, it must be that if two or three verses were revealed in Medina and so on. All right. So I'll need your um, your focus and concentration. Try to keep it. Try be to to, to uh, try to be alert and to pay close attention, uh, so you don't miss any of it. Okay. So Surah Al-Nahl starts in a way that grabs your attention and alerts you to an important development, an important event, but it doesn't quite tell you what that development is or what this event is. أَتَى أَمْرُ اللَّهِ فَلَا Subhanahu wa ta'ala amma yushrikun. Ata amrullah. Now, 
it's phrased in the present tense. But is it talking about something that happened in the past? Is it talking about something that will happen in the future? God's command, God's will, God's ordinance um, has unfolded. It has taken, it is um, it is here. It's like saying God's Amr, command, ordinance, will is here. Um, it is present. It's at your doorstep. So don't hasten it. And then, of course, what as the Quran often does, when it mentions Allah's command or Allah's will or Allah's ordinance, the Quran will often have a statement of tanzih, meaning a statement that uh, disassociates the divine from partnership, that says there are, there are no partners to Allah Ta'ala there are no possible partners and of course in in, in the traditional tafsir and Sufi tafsir there's a lot of writing about what is what is this thing that is mentioned as having come and then you are told not to hasten it or about to come and you are told not hasten it or perhaps even that it came already and you're told not to hasten it. And so in the traditional tafsir, there is a lot of talk, well, maybe it's talking about the hereafter, the, the hereafter, and there's even a hadith that, it's not a reliable hadith, but uh, that when uh, this surah was revealed, the minute the, the companions heard at the Amrullah, they, they all became alarmed and stood up and then as the revelation continued they realized it's talking about something that quite hasn't hasn't happened yet so they they relaxed somewhat but according to this report that there was anxiety again it's not a reliable report for many different reasons but it conveys a sense that you find and often the traditional tafsir that you know is it talking about uh, the defeat of of the Meccans in the Battle of Uhud sort of predicting it is it talking about the hereafter is about to come or will come soon is it talking about the total defeat of Mecca ten years later um, and the, the surrender of Mecca to uh, the forces, of, uh, the Muslim forces. Um, uh, what is it talking about? And then in the Sufi uh, Sufi esque literature, they have 
very an allegorical interpretations of what Eta Amrullah is. And they often talk about um, that the call, the, Allah's call to the conscience is present here and now, but don't rush it. If, you don't, if you're not patient with it, it's not going to work. If you don't have patience, if you're saying, I want it and I want it now, and I am not going to do what is required for the past, um, that it will elude you. Now, I don't think that, I, I just keep this in mind and we'll come back to the end, to the, uh, we'll come back to the beginning of the surah at the end of our tafsir. Because I think when it, what it is referring to is related to the entire theme of Surah Al-Nahl. It is alerting you, in fact, to the message that the Surah delivers to you. And it is like saying, uh, there is a compelling and critical lesson that is being revealed to you. But you need to un study it and understand it patiently. If you are not being patient and studious, um, you're not going to understand anything. It's going to elude you. Okay. So that opening grabs our attention and tells us there is something. And among, we could say this for at the get-go, that among the remarkable things about Surah Al-Nahl is that a good part of the Surah, maybe two-thirds of the Surah, reminds human beings of Allah's blessings. So some theologians even suggested that Surah Al-Nahl should have been called Surah Al-Na'm, the, the, the Surah of Blessings, because it, it consistently reminds human beings of how much God has given them and continues to give them and underscores this theme of gratitude for the endless bounties and blessings that come from Allah. But the question is, is it just reminding you of the blessings and the, the, the gifts and the bounties of Allah just to say believe or be grateful? As we will see, I think, the, the yes, in part, but 
there is a much bigger message that is being delivered in Surah Al-Nahl. The other thing about Surah Al-Nahl is we notice a very important fact that people just don't seem to notice. And that is, in the entire surah, there's only one prophet mentioned. And that's the prophet Ibrahim. And the way that the prophet Ibrahim is mentioned in the surah is a key to understanding the entire meaning of the surah. And the Prophet Ibrahim is mentioned towards the end of the surah after the surah is presenting you with a, a, a moral engagement that culminates with the mention of this prophet. So, as we said, we'll come back to the to the first ayah, inshallah. And beyond that, Allah immediately reminds us that the divine is in contact. The divine is involved. And that the angels are sent with the Holy Ghost, meaning the, the, the revelation, the spirit, delivering God's message. And the message the oral message from the divine and the lived message from the divine, i.e. the message of creation itself. And it quickly reminds you that human beings are created from nothing but a clot. They are created from something that appears so small and unimportant and that the, the, the most distinctive things about human beings is that they have this remarkable ability of voluntarism. They get to choose. And they, because they get to choose, because they get to choose, they can also argue. And that human beings are rational animals capable of argument. And because they're capable of argument, they are capable of compliance or non-compliance. They are capable of undertaking the choice. فَإِذَا هُوَ خَصِيمٌ مُبِينٌ خَصِيمٌ even 
has a, a, an implication that the term itself implies that human beings cannot, it's not just that they can argue, they can even argue with God. And they can defy God. And God is fully aware, and as the Surah will tell us, this is quite intentional. That Allah understands that Allah has created beings that have the ability to argue with God, reject God, turn away from God, but this is all a part of what is intended. Okay. And as we will see this beginning, the, uh, the reference to human being as an argumentative animal is again very important for the trajectory of the surah and the message that the surah it will convey to us. And then the surah right away moves to reminding you of the blessings. And here, I mean, as I said, I'm not going to go, I, 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 you know, I'll, I'll just comment on certain things. Um, وَالْأَنْعَامَ خَلَقَهَا لَكُمْ فِيهَا دِفْءٌ وَمَنَافِعٌ وَمِنْهَا تَأْكُلُونَ وَلَكُمْ فِيهَا جَمَالٌ حِينَ تُرِيحُونَ وَحِينَ تَسْرَحُونَ The animals that were created, some of which we eat, but this expression in, in verse uh, 6, study Quran translates it as, uh, and God created for you in which uh, animals in which there is worms and other uses and whereof you eat, some of which you eat. And in these animals or in them there is beauty for the for you. Study Quran translated it as beauty for you. Um, when you bring them home and when you take them out to pasture. That they beautify your life. And it is a, a reference that caught the attention of many Quranic commentators. Um, to alert us that yes, animals are there in part for our ser to serve, but they add an aesthetic quality It is as if they have a, 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 the, the same quality that trees and flowers and rivers and everything in creation possesses. Now, it's remarkable, but it is difficult to, to, to um, get to modern Muslims to understand how much of their tradition was influenced by it that simple reference, وَلَكُمْ فِيهَا جَمَالٌ the, the idea, the whole, in the Islamic civilization, often tales of wisdom are told on the mouth of animals. The fox, the hippopotamus, the alligator, the, and what, what sparked the Muslim imagination to, 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 to give the existence of animals 
its due. Because the purpose of animals is not simply to serve human beings. Um, the, uh, the practice, for instance, of exterminating animals as a solution, it only entered into Muslim lands with colonialism. The, 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 you know, the practice of um, killing animals for their, their tusks or uh, overhunting animals or uh, making sure that animals do not disturb uh, fancy neighborhoods or killing uh, stray dogs or, or, or cats instead of putting them in alcohol as used to be the practice for hundreds it only was introduced with colonialism. The Islamic tradition itself is replete with this idea that you cannot simply exterminate an animal uh, to get rid of the nuisance. It, it's, it's a very foreign idea to, to the Islamic tradition. Okay. So... And the Quran goes to all the way to verse 8, reminding you of the richness of creation, of living things like horses and donkeys and their place. This is 8. And Allah creates what you do not know. Now, Again, one of these Quranic references that has a big story in the Islamic civilization. There is a hadith, it's not an, a reliable hadith, it's not authentic, that the, which the Prophet is reported to have said, God creates what you don't know, is that the, the, the Prophet talks about God creating people that are... Um, far away from our eyesight. It sounds, if you, if you read the hadith, it sounds like as if uh, the, the, the Prophet ﷺ is talking about aliens. But as I said, it's not an authentic hadith. But nevertheless, the important part is that God is constantly creating and that what we experience of God's creation is very limited. And that is also why, unlike in the Christian tradition, Muslims never had a problem, or Islam, Muslim jurists never had a problem really was, was accepting the possibility of creatures from other planets, um, of aliens, of UFOs, of the whole thing, because it, the Quran tells us Allah creates what you don't know. And what you don't know, it's quite expansive. وعلى الله قصد السبيل ومنها جائر ولو شاء الله ولو شاء ولو شاء لهداكم أجمعين. This is nine. And and it is for God to reveal. The, the correct path, the right path, the straight path. Although God shows the right path, 
But there are plenty, regardless of how they're shown, they will go astray. means some will deviate. Just people, regardless of how much you show them in the past, they will go astray. They will spin off. And as we'll see, this is, again, quite important for the central theme of the surah itself. But remember, you, Muhammad, and you Muslims, remember that if Allah would have willed, everyone would have been guided to the past. But that's not what Allah wills. Again, it is easy for the modern mind to sit there and say, yeah, yeah, okay, so, but you are creating the seeds for a civilization. And this is precisely what the seeds for what it took an entire enlightenment in Europe to simply, and that is tolerance, the idea of, of diversity as not a moral failure, but diversity as a fact of life. That is not necessarily a moral failure because pre-enlightenment diversity was seen as a moral failure. It is something where people, the, it, it, the devil has won when people are, are, are diverse. But in the Quranic outlook from the very beginning, time and time and time again, Muslims are reminded, regardless of how much Allah shows the straight path, there are people who will go astray, and if God would have willed, everyone would have believed, everyone would have been truly correctly guided, but God doesn't will it, and it, so it will not be. Um, something I, I, I forgot to note. Um, if you go back to verse 8, um, Wazina means sources of uh, beautification and beauty. Note that it didn't say in Arabic that it didn't say so that you can use these animals to beautify yourselves but rather it alerts us to Allah's creation of living things other than human beings as a source of beauty and beautification in and of themselves. And, and this is one of these, you know, it, um, it, it bolstered an ethic um, of respect for the existence of things beyond human beings. Okay.
and up to eleven, it alerts you to common themes: rain, water, vegetation, the growth of diverse fruits and vegetables. Um, and you can probably imagine that the minute it, the, the Quran refers to um, the, the, who, it is God who sent water from the heavens in Sufi-esque approaches that's understood allegorically for a theme of guidance and the, the heavens are always allegorically understood to refer to guidance and God's divine connection. And you notice in 11 it says إِنَّ فِي ذَلِكَ آيَةً لِقَوْمٍ يَتَفَكَّرُونَ And in 12 إِنَّ فِي ذَلِكَ لِآيَةٍ لِقَوْمٍ يَعْقِلُونَ and then 11 and 13, في ذلك لآية لقوم يذكرون repeatedly in Surah Al-Nahl Allah time and time again says in creation in the things that I, that I am pointing out to you is a sign and a message for people who reflect for people who ponder, for people who think for people who study. Okay. Um, in 14, وَهُوَ الَّذِي سَخَّرَ الْبَحْرِ لِتَأْكُلُوا مِنْهُ لَحْمًا طَرِيًّا وَتَسْتَخْرِجُوا مِنْهُ حُلْيَةً تَلْبِسُونَهَا وترى الفلك مواخر فيه ولتبتغوا من فضله ولعلكم تشكرون. The reference of course is to, to sea and the fact that the, the sea uh, among other things is a source of food for human beings. وترى الفلك مواخر a reference to the, the, the properties, the, the physics of water in the ocean that is able to carry things like heavy boats that sail in the sea. The reason I, I, I'm flagging this in Sufi-esque tradition, is understood entirely allegorically for um, the the, what they call the the um, the methodology or the path, the tariqa for guidance. That is, it is they ask frequently or say, how does the ship sail within you? Um, is your ship still afloat? Has it drowned? Is it actually sailing correctly? And they also understood, understand the stars, referred as, as, as a source of uh, navigation, guide, uh, navigational guidance, also in allegorical terms. So, 
the stars are usually the teachers of the tariqah that walk you through the process of rotikat, through the process of elevation. And um, which stars you're guided by make all the difference for whether the, the ship sails and whether it sails correctly or whether it reaches a correct shore. So in, in the Sufi tradition, this is understood very symbolically. But for our purposes, I want to emphasize that the, the Quran is doing what it precisely sounds like it's doing. It is telling you, re reflect on this created Quran that surrounds you. And the fact that life on earth is meticulously measured to sustain life, your life, and that even if you reflect on the fact just on what comes out of the sea and what comes out of rivers and what happens with water and the way that water can generate a remarkable, give life to a remarkable diversity of food items and living it all points to a remarkable creator in every sense of the word. And then we get to وَإِن تَعُدُّوا نِعْمَةَ اللَّهِ لَا تَخْصُوهَا إِنَّ اللَّهَ لَغَفُورٌ رَحِيمٌ So this is 18. And if you try to in fact count the bounties and the gifts of your Lord, you will not go, you're not going to be able to. So much facilitates your life on earth, whether you are aware of it or not, that literally the blessings that you enjoy are countless. Okay. Now, this reference to nature and Allah's creation and a sunnah kawniya, we'll call it the sunnah kawniya, the, the, the sunnah of existence, the divine law in creation, as we will discover, is actually quite critical to the message of Surah Al-Nahl itself. Aside from allegorical understandings, and the theme of allegorical understandings, similarly when the Quran says, وَأَلْقَى فِي الْأَرْضِ دَرَوَاسِي أَن تَمِيدَ بِكُمُ وَأَنْهَارًا وَسُبَلًا لَعَلَّكُمْ تَهْتَدُونَ This is 15. And Allah put anchors that hold this earth together, holds the crust of the earth so life can become possible. Again, in Sufi-esque traditions, they, they, they understand this entirely allegorically, that the anchors that the Quran refers to is 
the anchors, what anchors your spirit, and false anchors, and uh, if you have false anchors, you are existing on unstable grounds. It's like it's you, you you're literally suffering one earthquake one earthquake after another. If you put your trust in the false anchors, like material things, like a career, like profession, like a tribal affiliation, like a family name, um, you are dooming yourself to a life of earthquakes. Whether, again, whether you realize it or not, at the beginning, when you're young, um, you know, youth is full of, full of um, the, the, your energy as a young person prevents you from feeling how unstable the grounds under you are. But as you get older, you feel the instability more and more. But again, for, for our purposes, I'm, I'm not investing myself, or I'm not investing myself in, in the allegorical understandings because of what I think Surah Al-Nahl is delivering to us, and the message that Surah Al-Nahl is conveying. Okay. So, and if you count God's blessings, you won't be able to. And Allah knows what you reveal and what you conceal. There's nothing that is secret. And remember that the way that you relate to creation and to the Creator will often decide whether you are a living dead on earth or whether you are actually alive. There are many people that they are, they are in fact, many people who exist on earth, they think they're alive, but because they've closed their hearts and eyes and don't understand their place in the universe and don't understand the remarkable symphony that surrounds them that in fact they are dead they just don't realize it this is of course 21 and again in 23 Allah emphasizes again to you that Allah knows what you conceal and what you reveal, Allah knows you intimately. But this time, what is added is And Allah does not like and does not favor the arrogant. Those who are high and mighty, those who suffer a form of egocentrism, their egos do not allow them to understand their existence in relation to the existence of everything else. 
they might think that all animals, for instance, are there for their entertainment and their amusement. They might think that all rivers and plants are there for their exploitation. The istikbar is, is, is when we say arrogance, it is be thinking you're entitled to more than you are in fact entitled to. And as we will see, this idea of the, the, the place of the ego and what it does will be developed further in Surah Al-Nahl later on in the Surah. And the problem with those who have this ego problem, this arrogance issue, is that when it comes to God's message, they only believe in what directly serves their ego. And what serves their ego is what gives them pleasure or causes them displeasure. So they don't believe in, the, in an abstract life that belongs to another because they don't feel it. What, the, 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 this process of istikbar. And as a result, when they hear Allah's message, they say, well, these were the fables of the old. That these were the mythologies, the fables. Why are they mythologies and fables? They, they have no patience for ideas about balance and justice and understanding your place in things because they are simply self-referential. They believe in something to the extent they ha can have an experience with it, and if it benefits them, gives them pleasure, then they welcome it. If it gives them displeasure, then they reject it. But beyond that, they, if in order to believe in the rights of others who do not directly, you do not experience directly, you need a level of abstraction. You all follow this? You, if, if, if I deal with you, if I deal with Joe, I have experiences with Joe. But if I've never dealt with Cheyenne, but I want to understand Cheyenne's rights, and I've never had any dealings with Cheyenne, I am dealing with an, an abstraction. If I am a mustakbir, then all my thoughts are related simply to Joe and me. Why? Because I deal with Joe. I have no patience for an abstraction. I e Cheyenne. But the fact that I have no patience for an abstraction is going to make me among the unjust. 
because then I don't have patience to thinking about the rights of people that do not directly impact upon me. They're not within my sphere of lived experiences. And that's a problem. Because then you live selfishly. Although the extent of your selfishness is something that you don't realize. And if you think about it, you know, a lot of the, the, experience, the problems we experience in our modern life, you know, people who, uh, 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 why is it that, uh, you know, what happens to animals when we consume meat, or what happens to fish when we eat fish, or what happens to uh, garment makers when we buy garments if they're trafficked or whatever, why is it that so many of us, that's not a problem for them. It's because they don't deal with abstractions. And because they don't deal with abstractions, they only exist within the realm of the self and what the self experiences. If something is, be, is not immediately within the sphere, then they can't think about it. They have a problem connecting with it. And as we will see, then they say, well, these are just stories. So many of those who accept injustice, when you tell uh, a lot of people that live in despotic countries, do you know that in the country that you live in, that your government tortures and rapes and kills in prisons, and they'll tell you, I've never seen anything. What is their problem? Is that when you, you talk to them about a message, they say, well, it's a story because I didn't experience it. It's a fable. It's false news. That is typical of an inequitous and immoral human being. Whether, and as we'll see, they don't mean to be immoral, but they are nevertheless, as we'll see in a second. But ultimately, and this is something that if Muslims understood it would keep them all late at night, they wouldn't be able to sleep. Because the Quran comes and tells them, this is uh, uh, um, 25. So, those people with their moral obliviousness and their arrogance, their istikbar, their egocentrism, they will carry their sins and the sins of the people that they led astray, even though the didn't know they're leading them astray. In other words, you have an impact. You have a full impact. There is the immediate causal, in, 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 in legal terms, we'll, so we talk about direct causation and proximate causation, right? So there is the immediate causal link of the people that you, but there's also the moral example that you leave. 
and the ripple effects of what you do. And so you will carry the sins and the sins of the ripple effects and the moral example that you leave, even though yudlunahum bighayr ilm, even if you, even if someone that was led astray is led astray long after you're dead, you know, if, those people who uh, leave videos and movies and stuff like that. Now we get to a core message in Surah An-Nahl. And we'll discover that Surah An-Nahl is setting the framework for that core message. And that's in 26. قَدْ مَقْرَ الَّذِينَ قَبْلِهِمْ فَأَتَ اللَّهُ بُنْيَانَهُمْ مِنَ الْقَوَاعِدِ فَخَرَّ عَلَيْهُمُ الصَّقْفِ مِنْ فَوْقِهِمْ وَأَتَاهُمُ الْعَذَابُ مِنْ حَيْثُ لَا يَشْعُرُونَ There were others قَدْ مَقَرَ الَّذِينَ مِنْ قَبْلِهِمْ There were others who similarly deviated and gone astray and didn't do the right thing. And so what happened is that the home that they built crashed upon their head because for all homes there are kawad, they are pillars upon which any structure is built. If the pillars are undermined, it is only a matter of time before the roof of what you've built will crash down upon your head. So, what are the pillars and what is the roof that Surah Al-Nahl is telling us about? And this is the most amazing and mind-blowing thing about Surah Al-Nahl, as we will see, inshallah. Surah Al-Nahl is telling us, you either build things properly, anchored upon the right pillars or it is only a matter of time before it will coming down crashing crash down on your head it will all collapse and as we will see it will tell us in considerable detail what these pillars are but it started out already was revealing to us an important pillar. Our relationship to the created world, our relationship to the things we consume, the things that we exist with, 
and things that beautify our existence. If we have the ailment of istikbar, if we are arrogant, even vis-a-vis -vis the animals and the water and the, the mountains and the vegetation and the plants and the forests, it will all come down crashing on our head. It will all collapse, as Surah Al-Nahl will lay out. It doesn't just start with ibadat. In fact, Surah Al-Nahr is not going to talk about ibadat for a while. It's going to talk about social ethics. The ethics of what we would call today environmentalism. But as we will see, it will go a great length to talk about core moral and ethical issues, without which it is only a matter of time before our society collapses. So, remember 26 is very important, because we'll come back to this, as we, inshallah, will come back to the first verse. So then, Surah Al-Nahl moves to tell us something about what it's all about, something that we often ignore, but in truth, it is core to the very meaning of our life. And that is the moment of death. You can't understand life if you don't comprehend death. Anyone that doesn't, that avoids thinking about death, they can't really understand life. And so we see in 28, right away then it shifts and takes us and tells us الَّذِينَ تَتَوَفَّاهُمُ الْمَلَائِكَةُ ظَالِمِي أَنفُسِهِمْ فَأَلْقَوُ السَّلَمْ مَا كُنَّا نَعْمَلُ مِنْ سُوءٍ بَلَا إِنَّ اللَّهَ عَلِيمٌ بِمَا كُنْتُمْ تَعْمَلُونَ Those who will confront Allah's angels at the moment of death and it is fascinating because then it tells you that who are those people? These are the people who are zalimi and fusihim. Those are, these are the people that have been unjust to themselves. What are they going to tell the angels shortly after they die? This is, this is long before Yom Kuyama. This is the Barzakh, the world of Barzakh. Is that upon dying, they will defend themselves. Remember, human beings are argumentative. And they will defend themselves and say, Ma kunna we, we didn't do anything wrong. 
We, were, we lived a good life. We were good people. We didn't hurt anyone. Bala inna The answer is no. Allah really knows what you were really doing. That's scary. Those who die, they think they've been living a good life, but upon this, they discover that in fact, they are among those who have left a legacy of Zunub that there will they will bear. Now, what type of person leaves a legacy of Zunub? Ponder it. If you are a teacher and you abuse your position as a teacher and you hurt students and give them complexes for the rest of their lives, you make someone, maybe a student, hate Islam. Maybe you make another student have deep psychological problems because who knows whatever abuse you inflicted on them. Any position of trust that could have implications. You might think you've lived a good life, but you forget that God sees all and God knows all. Now, the really scary part for me, and I'm not talking about what, what what makes my tears roll down is when I think of what I eat and what I drink and what I wear. At that moment when Allah says, where did your money go? Did you support the right things? This is what my istighfars all day long is about. Because Allah demands that I, as a human being, live a morally conscientious life. And moral conscientiousness in an earth that has become full of injustice is very difficult. But the least that I can do is to try my best and to be humbled by my inabilities, not to minimize them and say, oh, God will forgive me. I'm thinking of the moment of death, that when the angel comes and say, you deserve a salam, you deserve peace on you, or do you deserve to be treated as an outcast? And then we see in 32 the contrast. الَّذِينَ تَتَوَفَّاهُمُ الْمَلَائِكَ الْطَيِّبِينَ يَقُولُونَ سَلَامٌ عَلَيْكُمْ وَدْخُلُوا الْجَنَّةَ بَيْمَا كُنْتُمْ تَعْمَلُونَ Now here the contrast. Those 
who are, die in a pure state. And the angels know that their legacy is clean. And all they can tell them is salamun alaykum. Whether you believe in the torments of the grave or not, azabu qabr, but the reality of the moment of death is undeniable. In the moment of death, you will see either comforting angels or terrifying angels. It depends on what you as a person was and what legacy you're leaving behind on earth. Now, Uh, uh, um, there is a, um, an, uh, an, uh, an um, 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 من سن سنة سيئة كان عليه وزرها ووزر من عمل 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 بها that the Prophet reported the saying that whoever creates a bad sunnah you bear the sins of that sunnah um, and the sins of anyone that follows in your footsteps anyone that is influenced by it and does the same thing so, you know, it, it, especially in the age of recordings and videos and so on, you have to be careful what you leave behind. Um, because, you know, that opens the doors to, to good, but it also opens the door for a lot of uh, bad. Um, The other thing is um, on 23 when Allah refers to al-mustakbirin, the arrogant, remember that the Prophet said when he was asked what is kibar, what is, what is arrogance? And he said, batrul haqq wa ghamtul nas. Denying the truth or resisting truth. Wa ghamtul nas and refusing to recognize the rights of people. So al-istikbar is not just something limited to rich people or something limited to powerful people. It is limited, it, it, it means people who are self-referential, egocentric. They don't care about the rights of others. Um, oh, yeah. On 26, 
when a lot refers to tearing down things collapsing but when the columns or the pillars are um, torn down. There are reports in traditional tefasir that say that verse 26 is referring to um, uh, the, um, the Tower of Babel that was re reportedly built by Nimrod. Uh, what is Nimrod in English? I don't know. Um, Nimrod, right? Nimrod? Nimrod? Nimrod. Same thing. Same, Same thing. thing. Uh, so, Nimrod bin Kanaan, who reportedly built this high tower in Babel because he, like the Pharaoh, he imagined that he can, uh, sort of to, to mock the idea of divinity, and the tower crumbled. Now, of course, the traditional tefasir, this coupling between, you know, an event saying, oh, well, you know, it must be that it's talking about the Tower of Babel. But the, 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 the way the ayah is, 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 is um, it's, it's general. It doesn't limit itself to a single historical event. And as we all see, it is important to the entire message of Surat al-Nahl. Um, so, I don't put much weight on the the traditional claim that this is limited, that this is referring to the Tower of Babel and so on. I mean, for that matter, it could refer to any building that collapsed that was built by a tyrant. And there, I'm sure there are, you know, thousands of them in history. Um, okay. Um, Similarly, there is a report about those, in verse 28, it says that uh, those who that those who the angels come to and they've died in an unjust state or have been unjust to themselves. Um, there are reports that say that this verse refers to Muslims who converted to Islam but did not do the Hijrah to Medina and stayed in Mecca. And because they stayed behind in Mecca, the Meccans forced them to serve in the Meccan army fighting Muslims in the Battle of Badr. And then some of these people were killed in battle. And so some traditional commentators say, well, this verse is referring to these Muslims who, because they failed to migrate, they were end up being conscripted in the army of the Kuffar and ended up being killed in battle in an unjust state. But, of course, that assumes that this verse was revealed in Medina, which is something that it has very little support. And it's very, it's, it's the, the evidence that this verse is referring to that historical event that takes place 
much later, you know, several months later, after the revelation of Surah Al-Nahl, uh, is speculative. I mean, it's just a, a coupling of, of some event that the ayah seemed to fit, so they said, okay, it must be talking about that. Um, so that's in the, in the traditional uh, traditions. You're all, you're all with me? Why do you look distracted? Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Okay, so we are at 35. <laughs> نحن ولا آباؤنا ولا أحرمنا من دونه من شيء كذلك فعل الذين قبلهم فهل على الرسل إلا البلاغ المبين So in 35 the, the, the typical again the Quran answers or again the Quran mentions the typical attitude for the rejectionist camp, the camp that has a hard time, as it said earlier in the surah, hard time not going astray from the state path. And the, the typical attitude is to feel, well, you know, if, if, if God would have willed, we would not have gone astray. And so we are what we are. And it's important to understand this because when we, it is not just that they are saying, oh, we are using God's, it's not that they are necessarily uh, uh, believers in predestination. It's not that they are adopting a determinist philosophy. Uh, rather that their attitude is we are what we are we we accept ourselves the way we are so and the way we are is the way our heritage is the way our parents were so we have a way of life don't bother us and as we will see, this is one of the attitudes that leads to the collapse that Surat al-Nahr is speaking about. And then it says, وَلَقَدْ بَعَثْنَا فِي كُلِّ أُمَّةٍ رَسُولًا أَنَا عَبُودُ اللَّهِ وَاشْتَنِبُ الطَّاهُودِ فَمِنْهُمْ مَنْ هَدَى اللَّهِ وَمِنْهُمْ مَنْ حَقَّتْ عَلَيْهِ الضَّلَالَةِ فَسِيرُوا فِي الْأَرْضِ فَانْظُرُوا كَيْفَ كَنَا عَاقِبَةُ الْمُكَذِّبِينَ this is 36. In Tahris Allah Hudahum, Allah Hudahum, Fa in Allah, Layahdi, Mayudil, 
وَمَا لَهُمْ مِنْ نَاصِرِينَ So, 36 and 37 reminds us again of the obvious point. Allah sends prophets, and interestingly, and, and it's important to note that Rasul and Allah worship God. Tahut is not Tahut could be not believing in God. But Tahut is a broader term for all forms of injustice. All despotism, all oppression, all injustice is Tahut. And some took the warning seriously and 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 worship God and resist the Tawud, but some did not. The important thing in 36 is that Allah invites us to say, ard study the earth. Traverse in this land, meaning Sirful Arctic doesn't necessarily mean travel the earth, it means study the record of the earth, study history in our modern language. Study history so you can learn what happened to those before you that collapsed. And then a reminder to the Prophet again that we know, Allah knows that you really wish they you know that you what you are preaching is the truth and as a result you really wish all of them would believe you and follow you but understand that that's not possible all of them will not follow you and not all of them will be guided regardless of how much you are keen on their guidance. Okay. Then we move down to 41. This is 41. And as to for those who, in fact, migrated after they were treated unjustly, Allah promises to reward them in this life and in the hereafter. And here it's talking about those who migrated to Abyssinia, those who were oppressed and had already gone, had already left Abyssinia, and we get here a, a reference within the surah that helps us situate the historical position of the surah itself. Okay. Um, in passing, notice verse 44, it says, وَمَا أَرْسَلْنَا مِنْ قَبْلِكَ إِلَّا رِجَالًا نُوحِي إِلَيْهِمْ فَاسْأَلُوا أَهْلَ الذِّكْرِ إِنْ كُنْتُمْ لَا تَعْلَمُونَ the, the Quran in more than once 
makes a reference to Ahlul Dhikr, the people of the remembrance. And it tells, it advises um, Muslims to consult, to use the people of remembrance as a reference. Of course, in traditional tafsir, they have, they, there's a discussion as to whether in this context, in this area, um, 44, whether here it's referring to Al-Dhikr, meaning the scholars of Judaism and Christianity, or it's referring to scholars of Islam. Um, and in Sufi Askafasir, they read this reference here to referring to um, scholars of Sufism. Um, but elsewhere in the Quran, elsewhere it will talk about Ahlul Dhikr in a different context, so we'll leave that discussion till then. For now, just notice that there's this reference to um, consult people who specialize, those who in fact studied the matter. Okay. Forty-seven. A warning that we would expect in the Quran, because it occurs several times, that tells people, you don't know when the day of judgment will be. But, and that's, that, that is a, a, a rather typical warning. You don't know when the day of judgment will be, and you are taking a risk. أَوْ يَأْخُذْهُمْ فِي تَقَلُّبِهِمْ Sorry, oh, yeah. أَوْ يَأْخُذْهُمْ فِي تَقَلُّبِهِمْ فَمَا هُمْ بِمُعْجِدِينَ أَوْ يَأْخُذْهُمْ عَلَى تَخَوِّفٌ فَإِنَّ رَبَّكُمْ لَرَؤُوفٌ رَحِيمٌ يَأْخُذْهُمْ عَلَى تَخَوِّفٍ This expression is fascinating. It warns people that uh, the, the hereafter could be uh, the coming of the hereafter, fine. But then it warns them that think about your affairs. When things turn hard, what plagues human beings is a state of anxiety and fear. When people start going through the process of collapse, the results of their injustice, what pervades society is not stability, but instability, anxiety, and fear. This expression would fit perfectly to every society that has collapsed and produced refugees, for instance. So there is this social anxiety and they start seeing that disasters are occurring one after the other. It's like saying, it's like saying to you, be careful 
there's a hereafter. But also, things could start falling apart all around you. And then you will live in anxiety as you turn to God, as you see the things that you thought were stable in life collapsing after, after the other. Ya'khudum ala takhawufin is also not just addressed to societal context, but also addressed to the individual context. So you could build your entire ecosystem on a profession, but suddenly you see your professional life collapsing. You could build your entire ecosystem on wealth and a family, but suddenly you see your family collapsing from the inside. Ya'khudum ala takhawufin is that you, you live full of yourself when things are going well, but you don't know when Allah starts making things collapse within. Okay, then a most remarkable Quranic expression that modern Islam is completely oblivious to, but pre-modern Islam has written so much about. أَوَلَمْ يَرَوْا إِلَى مَا خَلَقَ اللَّهُ مِنْ شَيْءٍ يَتَفَيَّأُ ظِلَالَهُ عَنِ الْيَمِينِ عَنِ الْيَمِينِ وَالشَّمَائِلِ سُجَّدًا لِلَّهِ وَهُمْ دَاخِرُونَ وَلِلَّهِ يَسْجُدُ مَا فِي السَّمَاوَاتِ وَمَا فِي الْأَرْضِ مِنْ دَابَّةِ وَالْمَلَائِكَةُ وَهُمْ لَا يَسْتَكْبِرُونَ So 48 comes and tells us, I'm looking at the study Quran, have they not considered that whatsoever God has created casts its shadow to the right and to the left, prostrating to God while in a state of humility? And to, unto God prostrates whatever crawling creatures or angels are in the heavens or on the earth, and they do not, and they are not arrogant. So, the shadows being cast to the right and left, and these shadows are prostrating before Allah. And in fact, Everything in existence prostrates before Allah. And so you pause and you say, how are the shadows prostrating before Allah? Now, in the Sufi-esque tradition, they take this to great heights of spiritual philosophy. Between what is real and what is unreal. The shadows that you cast right and left in the Sufi-esque tradition are shades of the self that are not true to the selves. In the traditional tafsir, it doesn't tell us much. 
But reflect upon this. Everything, including the shadows being cast to the right and left, well, how do the shadows come about? The shadows are a product of the natural laws of creation, a sunnah kawniya. And prostration means that all lives in a state of submission to the divine will as Allah coded existence, as Allah coded the properties of light, the properties of darkness, the physics of light, and the physics of darkness, and as Allah coded everything in nature, you are in fact existing, it's a, it's a shift in paradigm in the way you see everything. You are not just existing in creation, but you are existing in an intentional creation. Everything, including the shadows, including every whisper, including every hiccup, including every yawn, everything is according to the law of sujood, meaning the law of submission. It is all meticulously measured. The reason that suddenly we don't find a human being waking up with the bed on the ceiling instead of the floor of the bedroom, or you don't suddenly, you're not walking and you find that suddenly you are running despite your will, or suddenly your arm starts flapping and you fly with one arm, all of it is because of that state of sujood in existence. Rationality and reason, which is anchored in the empirical laws of causation, is in fact a state of sujood. When you study reason and you study rationality, you are studying the laws of sujood. That is why when someone like Mullah Sadra says one of the highest forms of ibadah, of worship, is to understand the laws of physics and mathematics is because you are understanding the laws of sujood. It's a paradigm shift. You are seeing God in everything, as everything constantly testifies by following the laws, by following the laws that the maker laid out for it, Everything testifies to the Creator. Except who is the one creature that is capable of istikbar? Human beings. Everything, the shadows, the animals, the, the plants, the wind, the, everything, 
It complies without istikbar. This will become very critical as later on the Quran says, Ayat al-Amana. But for now, it is telling you, understand, creation is not happenstance and it's not there for you to do with it as you please. Creation is in fact in a state of sujood. So when you meddle with creation, keep in mind, you either meddle with creation according to the laws of the Creator, or you are introducing a disruption to the state of ibadah that creation is in vis-a-vis the Maker. When I come and I change the properties of things, I am not at liberty to do as I will. I am not at liberty to destroy mountains, to divert rivers, to change, to play around with genetics. Everything is measured. And understand your position because istikbar is the poison that will bring the structure down. Okay. In passing, I'm just going to say that notice in 51 it says, وَقَالَ اللَّهُ لَا تَتَّخِذُوا إِلَى هَيْنِ اثْنَيْنِ God said don't take two gods. Why? Because remember in, in the past surah we said that the laws of creation are in, in, it, in, in a relationship of dualities. But don't, but the creator is not plagued by duality. The dualities in creation have a single God. There was a school of thought that doesn't exist, that, that tended, <coughs> not Muslim, but I mean, well, some of them converted to Islam and tried to introduce it in Islam, but that there is a God of light and a God of darkness. That there has to be a God of good and a God of evil. But understand that the creators is exempt from the laws of creation. Okay. And then it tells us what we already, it elaborates upon that Allah might inflict you with that state of fear and anxiety as things fall apart by saying, notice, understand, مَا بِكُمْ مِنْ نِعْمَةٍ فَمِنَ اللَّهِ ثُمَّ إِذَا مَسَّكُمُ الضُّرُّ فَإِلَيْهِ تَجْأَرُونَ That I know, Allah speaking to us says, I know, and you should know, that the blessings you enjoy are from Allah. 
Because when the blessings start collapsing, you come to Allah and Yaz'arun, you, you, it's like you cry out to the Lord. It's like, God, please help. But so many of you, once Allah helps, they are quickly, they quickly feel that God had nothing to do with the relief that they obtained. In the hardship, you say, Allah helps. When the ease comes, they start saying, well, maybe it was just coincidence. Maybe it was my skills. Maybe it's my talent. Maybe it's my abilities. Maybe it's my good luck, my good fortune. Maybe it's of my friends. Maybe it's my connections. Maybe it's what, whatever, the, the natural human inclination. A disastrous ailment in the collapse of the structure. And in 58, it tells us about, notice first, notice first, 61 it says, you know what? If Allah wouldn't, if Allah wasn't constantly intervening to mitigate your injustices, people often say, "Why, you know, the injustice? Why hasn't Allah intervened?" Well, what you don't know is Allah constantly intervenes. Because if Allah wasn't constantly intervening to mitigate your injustices and what you do as human beings, as selfish human beings, as mustakbirun, nothing would have remained on this earth. The injustice that you create would have destroyed everything in life. So, what before, right before 61, what is an example of that injustice that we're talking about? Is that there are people who when they learn that they're having a girl, they are distressed and ashamed. Surah Al-Nahl, this passage in 59 and 60, I've never seen a woman feminist refer to this this area, but it's clear. It's saying, by now, understand, Surat al-Nahl is laying out the things that would erode the pillars that would cause the structure to collapse. And what are the, among those ailments that would cause the structure to collapse? the hate of girls. If you don't like girls, you are you have that ill illness, you want boys, and you're ashamed of girls, you have a disease. Because at the most basic level, you're objecting to God's will. Who has girls and who has boys is God's will. And for you to think that one gender is better than the other 
you are imposing a value system that God didn't give you. God didn't tell you one is better than the other. So you don't even have a right to be ashamed because you're having a girl. In fact, you don't have a right to prefer one gender over the other. Then, then we get to 67 all the way to 71. وَإِنَّ لَكُمْ فِي الْأَنْعَامِ لَعِبْرَةِ نُسْقِيكُمْ مِمَّا فِي بُطُونِهِ مِنْ مِنْ بَيْنِ فَرَثٍ وَدَمٍ لَبَنًا خَالِصًا سَائِغًا لِلشَّارِبِينَ ومن ثمرات النخيل والأعناب تتخذون منه سكرا ورزقا حسنا إن في ذلك لآية لقوم يعقلون وأوحى ربك إلى النحل أن اتخذي من الجبال بيوتا ومن الشجر ومما يعرشون So reflect human beings reflect the fact that Cattle produces milk that is geared to help you in your life. It is as if Allah is is anticipating evolutionary theory. Cows and goats have milk that ends up serving numerous causes in your life. And from dates and grapes تَتَّخِذُونَ مِنْهُ سَكَرًا وَرِزْقًا حَسَنًا This is 67. Let's see how Sadiq Quran translated. And from fruit of date, palm, and vine, from which you derive strong drink and goodly provision. <laughs> they translated as strong drink, sakaran. So here's the thing. Is it saying, so from palm trees, you get dates, and then you also get grapes. And from that, you have a sakar which could be intoxication, you drink to get intoxicated. What is Hasana? This is before the prohibition of alcohol. When Surat al-Nahl is revealed, alcohol was not prohibited yet. So it's saying that among the things, the properties of these things is A, you get intoxicated, and B, you have Rizq al-Hasana, blessed, um, uh, uh, um, and and goodly provision is the the study Quran blessed provisions. The implication then is that intoxication is not blessed provision, because you get intoxication, what 
Sakaran warizqan hasana. So rizqan hasana is differentiated. What is a blessed provision doesn't include the making of alcohol from grapes and dates. However, and this would make perfect sense, and this is how all the traditional Quran interpret it. Um, because it's before the prohibition of alcohol and the Quran is gradually telling Muslims Allah doesn't like alcohol. But it, does, it doesn't happen in one full swoop. But there's another meaning to, to sakaran. And the other meaning of sakaran is anything that you produce sweetness from. The word sukkar, sugar, comes from that. So it is possible It is possible that it is saying that you, you, what you get from that is sweet drink and provisions that you trade in, that you then farm, so you consume parts of these dates and grapes, that's a sucker. What is Qanhasana and you trade in the rest? It is possible, it's saying that. And if and it's also possible that it's just talking about intoxication before the the prohibiting of alcohol. Um in uh Yeah, anyway. I just want to make sure I didn't forget anything. Yeah, oh, um, 52. Might have jumped. Walau ma fi samawati is it 52? Here is Allah, everything in the heavens and earth belongs to Allah. The, the, I'm flagging this simply to say that and what dinu wasaba means and the the solid a dinu thabit a dinu daim so it is the solid um, firm truth of faith Okay, let's go back to, now we get to the portion of Surah 
a nachl that's named with reference to the nachl. And the bees are most remarkable creatures because they have been coded by Allah, Allah inspired in them their habits, which include the the, the king of the of uh, uh, larger than the rest, the bees that guard the hive, which is part of their their traditions that they have bees that actually guard the hive and prevent foreign bees from entering the hive. The fact that honey is created by these insects, which is the most remarkable thing. But the bees are a symbol for the instinct that is coded in so many animals that create remarkable architectural feats without irrational intellect but simply by instinct like you know dam builders if you study a beehive it is an amazing engineering feat just mind-blowing the production of honey is mind-blowing but there is something else that's always struck me when i've read I started reading about bees when I was studying the surah. And back then, 10 years ago, I read that bees are so essential to human life that if bees disappear, human life would end. A few years later, I don't remember how many years later, maybe it was three years or something like that, I read an article that bees, in fact, are dying all around Earth, and that they don't know why bees are dying, and that it is a, a big problem, because the disappearance of bees would create an enormous crisis. So the Quranic reference to bees is remarkable in this symphony of signals and symbols as to the importance of creation that you exist in and that you are commanded not to be among the mustakbirin in, not to be among the arrogant, as we say, as we said, those who deny the truth and don't care about the rights of others, including including the rights of shadows and everything that casts shadows, which is everything in existence, including the rights of rivers, the rights of mountains, the rights of bees. The way you conduct your life, if what you are doing leads to the death of bees, that's a crime against creation, against Allah. So,
So the message by now is becoming very clear in Surah Al-Nahl. Allah created rules. These rules, whether you realize it or not, enable you to build your homes. Your homes are symbols for your society, for your way of life. But there are pillars for that existence. And if the pillars are not properly structured, if you build your homes without anchoring the home on proper pillars, what is the inevitable result? Collapse. And we learn one of the most important pillars already, recognizing the rights of nature the rights of animals, the rights of mountains, the rights of rivers, the rights of bees. If you don't, the structure will collapse on your head. But the story doesn't end there. And honey, testifying from my own childhood, I used to be severely asthmatic. And we used, I used to take medicine, they were called Tedral pills um, from Germany, that ended up being, they, they were very heavy in cortisone, and they had horrible, horrible side effects. Horrible side effects. Um, as, as a child, alhamdulillah, they, 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 I mean, they could have killed me. They, that, they were that bad. So we switched to honey. My mother would make sure that I eat a lot of honey. And I can tell you, my asthma improved enormously. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't from doctors. But it's it's just amazing. I I don't know. I have no explanation for it. I'm not a doctor and not a scientist. So I don't know. Okay. Then seventy one. Wallahu fadla baadukum ala baadin fil rizq. فَمَنْ الَّذِينَ فُضِّلُوا بِرَادِّي رِزْقِهِمْ عَلَى مَا مَلَكَتْ أَيْمَانُهُمْ فَهُمْ فِيهِ سَوَاءٍ أَفَبِنِعْمَةِ اللَّهِ يَشْحَدُونَ Now 71, again, it's, it's one of these things that are in the Quran and it blows your mind that it doesn't revolutionize, revolutionize the life of Muslims. So, what does 71 say? Let's, let's look at the study Quran first. And God have favored some of you above others in provision. Those who have been favored do not hand over their position to those whom their right hands possess, 
such that they would be equal in this regard, would they just thus reject the blessings of God? That's one possible translation. So Allah has blessed فَضَّلَ بَعْضُكُمْ عَلَىٰ بَعْضٍ Allah has given, blessed each of you with different degrees of wealth. Okay. فَمَا الَّذِينَ فُضِّلُوا بِرَادِّي رِزْقِهِمْ عَلَىٰ مَا مَلَكَتْ أَيْمَانُهُمْ فَهُمْ فِيهِ سَوَاءٍ Those of you you don't give your money to could be slaves and it could be anyone that you are responsible you are financially responsible for. Linguistically, anyone that is under your guardianship in this context could be covered by Milk al Now, you don't give your wealth to other people so that you can all be equal in wealth. Now, when you don't do that, why how do I put it? So when you are not willing to share your wealth in this fashion at one level and this is what all the traditional tefasir say so why do you deny god's right or why are uh, but you don't share your wealth but god gives all to human beings so why don't you recognize your gratitude for god or towards god for God sharing God's wealth. That's what the traditional tafsir say, this ayah is saying. But think about it. You don't share your wealth, so why aren't you grateful that God shares his wealth So why does it say فَهُمْ فِيهِ سَوَاءَ فَبَنِعْمَةِ اللَّهِ يَشْحَدُونَ Why does it say so that you will be equal? I mean, if, if it, the point is you should be grateful to God because God shares God's wealth but you don't share your wealth it's comparing things that are not likes. In fact, the wealth I own is God's. 
So the traditional the perception of this or the traditional understanding of this leaves you rather confused. It's not the same thing. When I share what I have, it's not the same thing as when God shares what God has. It, but rather, it could be saying, in fact, that your failure to share your wealth so that you become equals is is the 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 obstinance towards Allah. Allah gave you wealth, but you don't share the wealth to achieve equality. And that is ingratitude to Allah. It plainly says that, says that. But for, go figure. The other thing is, the Prophet said, that anyone the, the, those who work for you as servants or those who you own as slaves, they are, khawalikum means that they are your kin, your equals. And the rest of the hadith says, so feed them from what you eat, dress them, uh, uh, clothe them from what you wear, have them sleep on what you sleep on, and don't burden them with more they can handle and the hadith is long so in other words recognize so the the hadith recognizes the inherent equality between servants and masters slaves and owners and says that you are kin here this ayah, in fact, for whom fihi sawa'a, how was it phrased? I found one scholar, but I didn't know he, who he was. I just found the notes that I wrote. He said, Al-Abid musawun lakum fil bashariya, wa ma'a thalik la tusharikunahum amwalakum. In fact, slaves are equal to you in humanity, but you don't share your wealth with them as equals. So, think of the pillars and the collapse. So, what are one of the pillars that is being established here? Do you share your wealth to achieve equality? Because if equality is theoretical, 
then that's food. Remember, it's not your wealth. It's all Allah's wealth. Okay. Then, if you go down to 74, tells you, you know, don't don't make comparisons. You as rational human beings, you are going to use your rational abilities to make parallels and comparisons and analogies in order to stray from the straight path. But then Allah counters this possibility with this example. And this example is very important. So, let's first go to the study Quran to get the English out of the way. God sets forth a parable, servant enslaved with power over not. So in other words, utterly powerless. And he unto whom he, God has provided a goodly provision, who then spends of it secretly and openly. Are they equal? Praise be to God. Nay, but most of them know not. God sets forth a bearable, two men, one of whom is dumb, with power over naught, in other words, utterly powerless, and who is a burden unto his master. Wheresoever he dispatches him, he brings no good. Is he equal to one who enjoins justice and who is on the straight path? So what is this parable? What is this parable telling us? Because as you know, or some of you might know, some moderns remarkably read this, these ayahs and said this is evidence that the Quran approves of slavery. There's nothing in this that says that the Quran approves of slavery. I mean, you, you have to be clueless about the Arabic language to read it that way. But, notice here, okay. So, Allah gives you a parable. The, the two parables. One is, Abd Mamluk la yaqdiru ala shay'in mimma razaqnaa. Uh, 
لا يقدر على شيء اسف عبد المملوك لا يقدر على شيء ومن رزقناه منا رزقا حسنا فهو ينفق منه سرا وعلانيه so one is عبد مملوك عبد مملوك here can refer to any disempowered person and this disempowered this disempowered person someone who is utterly not free to be able to do good is not equal to someone it doesn't tell us this other person doesn't tell us if the abd mamluk or not it just simply that says that this other person is free to do good so that's the first parable the second parable is a man who works for or is a maula is a servant for another man but this man is dumb and unable to do any good compared to someone is it someone who's rich no it is someone ومن يأمر بالعدل وهو على صراط مستقيم someone who advocates for justice pursues justice and is on the straight path so who are the two slaves the the, the first parable it alerts us to how miserable the condition of someone who is in unable to do good because he is not free to do good if you understand the quran this is a resounding condemnation of disempowerment it's telling you if people are not free to do good then that is a problem but the second one who is the servant that is dumb and does not is incapable of doing anything good compared to someone who pursues justice wa mustaqim and is on the straight path so in other words if you are someone who is not interested in justice who does not live an ethical existence you are the dumb servant who does no good vis-a-vis what god you are it's like all of us are servants of god abidullah those of us who live for justice and exist in an ethical existence are not a burden upon our lord we are not, those of us who are like that are not dumb who can do no good but those of us who don't care about justice like a lot of muslims are exactly what the quran des- describes 
a burden upon their Lord. They're like dumb servants. So all of those Muslims who tell you, oh, just, you know, do a salah and be, live a good Muslim and don't worry about issues of justice. Surah Al-Nahl settles this. Clearly, to read this as in any way implying a pro-slavery position is insane. I mean, you literally have to have your brain screwed in the wrong way. It is the, the entire discourse is in fact a resounding condemnation of disempowerment. And a resounding condemnation of existing without justice as a core cause in your life. Now, oh, should tell you that in the traditional tafsir they say that Surah the ayah 75 and 76 were revealed because Osman ibn Affan, the, the famous uh, companion, had a slave, um, um, a slave boy called Asyad bin Abil Ais. And Asyad bin Abil Ais hated Islam. He not only refused to become a Muslim, but he actually would hate Islam. And he would always go to his master, Osman ibn Affan, and tell him to stop spending money on Muslims because he doesn't like Muslims and he doesn't like Islam. Uh, and despite that, Osman continued to support him and support his family for many years. And in the traditional tafsir, they told you that these ayat were talking about this slave boy. I'm sure that this slave boy existed, and I'm sure that story was Osman is true, that he had a slave boy who hated Islam, and so on and so forth, but I don't see the connection between that narrative and this ayah. And there's a lot of indicators that there's this, the whole thing about Osman and his slave had nothing to do with this ayah. But just for the sake of completeness, I thought you should know. Okay. Now, okay. I'm gearing up. Are you ready? Are the people online ready? Now look at 89. So now 89 comes and tells us what is done on a kitaba to be an and the coolie shay or who do or Ahma or Bush on the Muslim in We've sent the book to show you everything and guidance and mercy. Okay. Show you everything 
alerts us to, oh my Lord, we have a very important message here. The message being delivered is a very serious one. Otherwise, it wouldn't say Tibyanim the Shay. So, what comes right after it? Inna Allah ya'muru bil adli wal ihsani wa ita'i zil qurba wa yanha anil fahshai wal munkari wal baghi ya'idhukum la'allakum tazakkaroon So, number one, Tibyanan likul shay, Allah commands al-adl, justice, al-ihsan, goodness respecting and honoring family ties and forbids fahsha is the immorality that is specially done in secret. Wal munkar. What is wrong and arguably fahsha is something that is wrong by its nature, not situationally wrong. And munkar is something that is wrong by the measures of society or the conditions of society. So it, it changes. والبغي an injustice so after that lesson about equality we get to a core lesson so core that the so called wise man of the Arabs um Aksam bin Saifi. When he heard this ayah, he said, Inni arahu ya'mur bi makarim al-akhlaq wa yanha an malaimaha. And then he turned to his people and said, Kunu fi hazihi ru'asa wa la takunu fiha aznaba. So this man, who was known as the, 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 the wise man of the Arabs, says, who wasn't a Muslim at the time, he says, my Lord, this man Muhammad is advocating ethics, morality, and then he told his people, his tribe, You know, when it comes to this job, pursuing the ethical, you have to be at the head, at the forefront of everyone, not the last to follow. You must be always at the forefront of the ethical mission. Al-Hasan, Radiallahu anhu said, 
جمع جمع الله لكم الخير كله والشر كله في آية واحدة فوالله ما ترك العبد والإحسان من طاعة الله شيئا إلا جمعه وأمر به ولا ترك الفحشاء والمنكر والبغي من معصية الله شيئا إلا جمعه وزجر عنه says that Allah commanded that command in that single ayah is the source for all goodness because it is all comprehensive for everything ethical and moral. And it forbids everything that is unethical and immoral. It is, it's, and in fact, who was it that said this? I think I wrote it somewhere. Uh, yeah. And in fact, Uthman ibn Maz'oon converted to Islam when he heard this ayah and he said, وَلَوْ لَمْ يَكُنْ فِي الْقُرْآنِ غَيْرَ هَذِهِ الْآيَةِ لصدق عليه أنه تبيان كل أنه تبيان لكل شيء وهدى ورحمة. If the entire Quran there was nothing but this ayah, it would be true that the Quran is a tibyan لكل شيء is that the Quran teaches all that is good. So we are getting now a huge chunk of the pillar that is needed for things not to collapse. Do you know that in Jumu'ahs around the Muslim world, khatib after khatib will say, إِنَّ اللَّهَ يَأْمُرُ بِالْعَدْلِ وَالْإِحْسَانِ وَإِتَاءِ ذُو الْقُرْبَى وَإِنْهَانْ فَحْشَاءِ وَالْمُنْكَرِ وَالْبَغْيَ عِذْكُمْ لَعَلَّكُمْ تَذَكَّرُونَ We repeat it. But it doesn't mean anything in our lives anymore. Allah says, you live your life for justice. Al-adl. Justice. For all those people that tell you Muslim, it's okay with Islam to live under despotism. Muslims are not ready for democracy. Don't oppose an unjust ruler. Surah Al-Nahr comes and says, there are pillars to existence. If you don't care about equality, it will collapse on your head. If you don't care about the environment, it will collapse on your head. If you don't care about justice and goodness, it will collapse on your head. But then it doesn't stop there. Now look at this, it blows my mind. I have been in a state of dazzlement by Surah Al-Nahr for now 15 years of my life. After I saw what I saw, or after Allah allowed me to see what I saw, وَوْفُوا بِعَهْدِ اللَّهِ إِذَا عَهَدْتُمْ وَلَا تَنْقَضُوا الْأَيْمَانَ بَعْدَ تَوْقِيدَهَا وَقَدْ جَعَلْتُمُ اللَّهَ عَلَيْكُمْ كَفِيلًا إِنَّ اللَّهِ عَلَمَّ مَا تَفْعَلُونَ وَلَا تَكُونُوا كَالَّتِي نَقَضَتْ غَزْلَهَا مِنْ بَعْدِ قُوَّةٍ أَنْكَاثَةَ تَتَّخِذُونَ أَيْمَانَكُمْ دَخْلًا بَيْنَكُمْ أَنْ تَكُونَ أُمَّةٌ هِيَ أَرْبَى مِنْ أُمَّةٍ إِنَّمَا يَبْلُوَكُمُ اللَّهُ وَلَيُبَيِّنَ لَكُمْ يَوْمَ الْقِيَامَةَ مَا كُنْتُمْ فِيهِ تَخْتَلِفُونَ 91 and 92. So what is it saying? 
first if you make an oath towards Allah honor it don't go back on your iman And don't be and honor your words and honor your promises and honor your trusts. Now look at this. تَتَّخِذُونَ أَيْمَانَكُمْ دَخَلًا بَيْنَكُمْ أَن تَكُونَ أُمَّةٌ هِيَ أَرْبَمٌ أُمَّةٌ Don't be like those people who make a promise or an alliance, but they see that their advantage is to break one promise or to break an alliance. So what they're talking about is that reportedly a Mecca would make an alliance, but then find a tribe that is stronger or richer. So they break the, the, the alliance with the weak tribe and make a new alliance with the stronger tribe. And the Quran says that's immoral. Don't call that politics. That's immorality. Just because you see that now it's advantageous for you to break a promise and make a new alliance, to break a friendship and you make a new friendship, to be able to break a loyalty and make a new loyalty, that's part of the problem. You must learn to honor and trust your your word and respect your, your word. If you make a promise, you must honor it. And if you don't, you are going to be like the insane woman of Mecca. Reportedly, there was an insane woman in Mecca. They disagree on what her name was. There are like many different reports on what her name was. But she would weave sit and weave a, a, like a rug or a yarn or something and after she completes it she undoes it she takes it all apart and then weaves it again and then she was mentally ill and they used to call her the insane woman of mecca so, so the traditional tafsir tell you that the surah is reported but whether this is whether there was a woman like that or not the point is that if you do not honor your word and you are opportunists, you make a new alliance, a new friendship, and you this depending on your material advantage, you will be like someone who weaves only to undo what they weave immediately. So in other words, you will create nothing that immorality will enable you to establish precisely nothing. And in fact, look at 94. Take not your oath, do not 
I don't like the, the, the translation, so I'm just going to paraphrase it. Do not use promises and oaths as a way of being unclear and slippery and slimy with one another. Because if you do so, it will be as if your feet is standing upon slippery grounds. And you will taste the evil of what you've created. Wow. So, if our lifestyle is not to honor promises and to swear falsely and to make promises that are we don't intend to keep. So we are not establishing an Islamic society at all. It, it will, and the answer is absolutely yes. Then, then it reminds you of something very basic. So it's taking you, you are at this point saying, oh my God, if I'm going to build pillars for a social structure, it has to have proper ethical foundations. Because if not, I am building nothing and it will all collapse. Then it tells you what? And read the Quran. Because this is your guidance. And when you do so, say, Why? Because understand that shaitan is there. But shaitan has no sultan over those who do not surrender to shaitan. Many of you, whether you know it or not, surrender to shaitan. How do we surrender to shaitan? You don't ask Allah for protection from shaitan. You eat and you forget to ask Allah for protection from shaitan. You read and you forget to ask Allah for protection from shaitan. You go to work and you forget to ask Allah for protection from shaitan. You sleep. You wake up. You deal with your family. You deal with your husband. You deal with your wife. You deal with your children. Do you ask Allah for protection from shaitan or do you forget? Because if you forget, Shaitan is more than happy to share your life with you. Shaitan has only authority over you that you give to Shaitan. Do you live in a paradigm of istikbar? Are you egocentric? Are you selfish? Are you all about number one? 
Do you wake up thinking about yourself and go to bed thinking about yourself? Are you not interested in knowing what is going on with Muslims and human beings and how you can help and what is demanded of you? This is how shaitan partakes in everything. What is your attitude? What is your heart? Where is your soul? And then it takes you to a rather funny point. And it says, وَلَقَدْ نَعْلَمُ أَنَّهُمْ يَقُولُونَ إِنَّمَا يُعَلِّمُهُ بَشَرٌ This is 103. Well, it says, yes, we know that your detractors, Muhammad, the people in Mecca, say that there are these young Roman kids, Byzantine kids, that converted to Islam, and that they claim that because they, they were Christian, so they know something about the Bible, or they know something about the Torah, although most of them that, um, 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 there, there's so many, uh, uh, you know, there was a guy, man, a man called um, um, Jabr al-Rumi, there was a man called Aish, there was a man called uh, Salman al-Farsi, is a famous companion. Um, uh, there was a slave boy that belonged to a woman called uh, Umm Maisara. Uh, there was a, a kid called Balam. There was uh, another kid called Abu Fukayha. They were all these. All these kids were white kids, Byzantine kids who converted to Islam. And the the Mecca said, "Oh well, you know, it must be that they, they they're the ones who tell Muhammad uh, what to say in the Quran." But of course. You know, the Quran itself responds to them, say, you know, these kids are, don't, not, they're all not native Arabic speakers. And this is a Quran that confounds the most profound Arabic speaker. But in addition to that, we can say that, as I told you in the past, it is, if, it is impossible the, the differences between what the Quran says about biblical stories are far more important than the similarities. Okay. Then it segues to someone, Man kafara billahi, this is now 106. Man kafara billahi ba'da imanihi illa man ukriha wa qalbuhu mutmu'innun bil iman. ولكن من شرح بالكفر صدرا فعليهم غضب من الله ولهم عذاب أليم. and so what it's saying is that and whoever disbelieves in God after having believed save one who is coerced while his heart is at peace in faith. But whoever is happy with his disbelief, upon them shall be the wrath of God, and there shall be a great punishment. So there were a number 
number one, there were a number of people who apostated um, shortly before the Hijra. Um, the most famous of them was, of course, uh, Abd ibn Abi Sarh, Abd ibn al-Akhtal, Miqyas bin Sababa, Qais bin Walid bin al-Mughira. But then there were people who were apostated in the sense that they were tortured by Mecca, like the, the famous family of Yasser, who was severely tortured, and they, and under compulsion or coercion, they um, cursed Muhammad or cursed, you know, whatever. And so uh, the, this ayah addressed that contingency of apostasies, whether under coercion or whether actually non-coerced. Okay, then go to one ten and one eleven. Thumma inna rabbaka lilladheena hajaru min ba'di ma futinu thumma jahadu wa sabaru inna rabbaka min ba'di بعدها لغفور الرحيم يوم تأتي كل نفس تجادل عن نفسها وتوفى كل نفس ما عملت وهم لا يظلمون وضرب الله مثلا قرية كانت آمنة مطمئنة يأتيها رزقها رغدا من كل مكان فكفرت بأنعم الله فأذاقها الله لباس الجوع والخوف بما كانوا يصنعون so first in 110, we get an explicit reference in Surah Al-Nahl to those who were persecuted and responded to persecution with an act of resistance through Hijrah. And the affirmation that this is a jihad Sabr is a shahad, persevering rather than falling, rather than crumbling under depression and apostating. But notice something about this entire narrative about coercion, hijra, and then the village. In 112, it talks about a village that lived in luxury, but then as it drifted away from God, God inflicted it with disasters. And the disasters were jua, hunger, and khauf, and fear. Is Allah talking, is Allah ref, sort of implying to, or threatening Mecca? But look deeper into this issue. It's talking about people who are coerced to disbelief. And people who 
are persecuted, and because of the persecution, they were forced to migrate. And then it talks about an unjust polity that suffers the consequences of its injustice. The message is clear. A polity that is infected with coercion and persecution is a polity on its way to crumbling. in the exploration of aspects of justice and injustice. So we've already told us pursue justice, pursue goodness, avoid injustice. It talked about coercion. It talked about persecution. Now, in traditional tafsir, they say, no, no, but it talks about the persecution of Muslims and coercion of Muslims. Why do we tribalize Allah's values? We know that coercion is contrary to justice, whether by Muslims, whether against Muslims, or against non-Muslims. We know that persecution is wrong, whether it is against Muslims or against non-Muslims. It is talking about justice, al-adl wal-ihsan, justice and goodness as a value. So first, it takes us to persecution. It takes us to coercion, then persecution. Then 116 to something that is fascinating. وَلَا تَقُولُوا لِمَا تَصِفُوا أَلْسِنَتُكُمْ الْكَذِبِ هَذَا حَلَالٌ وَهَذَا حَرَامٌ لِتَفْتَرُوا عَلَى اللَّهِ الْكَذِبِ so one sixteen, another aspect of injustice that is amazing, and that is lying about God's law, saying this is halal and this is haram without evidence. Those who wear the mantle of sheikhdom and legislate in service to their egos, not in service to God's will. Okay. We are reaching the crescendo end. the earth-shattering end. But before we get to the earth-shattering end, I need to take a two-minute breather no. to be able to handle it. <laughs> two minutes. Don't go anywhere. Okay. So, don't Say this is haram and halal. 
because in fact in fact, this in fact did happen with the Israelites. The pontifications upon halal and haram beyond what God's law said. إِنَّ إِبْرَاهِيمَ كَانَ أُمَّةً قَانِتًا لِلَّهِ حَنِيفًا وَلَمْ يَكُمْ مِنَ الْمُشْرِكِينَ شَاكِرًا لِأَنْعُمِهِ إِشْتَبَاهُ وَهَدَاهُ إِلَى صِرَاطٍ مُسْتَقِيمٍ وَآتَيْنَاهُ فِي الدُّنْيَا حَسَنَةً وَإِنَّهُ فِي الْآخِرَةِ لَمِنَ الصَّالِحِينَ ثُمَّ أُوحَيْنَا إِلَيْكَ أَنْ اتَّبِعَ مِلَّةَ إِبْرَاهِيمَ حَنِيفًا وَمَا كَانَ مِنَ الْمُشْرِكِينَ So, Ibrahim was an Ummah. Ibrahim, let's see how it's translated by this study Quran. Ibrahim was an Ummah. This is 120, right? Mm -hmm. So the study Quran translated it as truly Ibrahim was a community, devoutly obedient to God, a Hanif, and he was not among the idolaters. Okay. Ummah means an Ummah is a Rajul al Alim. الرجل الجامع للخير المعلم للخير an ummah is a man or a human being who is a teacher of goodness so Ibrahim was an ummah not in the sense that Ibrahim was a community Ibrahim was not an ummah, not a community. But Ibrahim was a teacher of goodness. And remember that Ibrahim reached Tawheed before Ibrahim was chosen as a prophet. Qanitan lillahi Hanifa. Hanif means someone who is on the straight path who has not gone astray so a hanif is someone who before islam before the revelation of islam realizes through instinct or rationality the oneness of god and submission to God and the relationship of creation to God and God to creation. So follow the path of Ibrahim. Then it tells you إِنَّمَا جُعِلَ السَّبْتُ عَلَى الَّذِينَ اخْتَلَفُوا فِيهِ 
إن ربك ليحكم بينهم يوم القيامة فيما كانوا فيه يختلفون So it makes a reference to the Sabbath in Judaism. Why? Well, Jews, Israelites said that they are God's chosen people because they descended from Ibrahim. But Islam rejects the idea of a chosen people because they are descendants of Ibrahim. That's not what makes you a chosen people. They are not the true followers of Ibrahim by their claim of being a chosen people. You are. Why does the Surah bring Ibrahim at this point? And why is Ibrahim the only prophet that is mentioned in Surah An-Nahl? Okay, hold on to this. For a second. Then it says, ادعو إلى سبيل ربك بالحكمة والموعظة الحسنة. Preach the path of your Lord through wisdom, الحكمة. Wisdom. We, we, we recite this all the time, but we don't stop and think about it. Preach the path of your Lord through wisdom. So if I am talking and what I'm saying is ignorant, belongs to the medieval age, is epistemologically disconnected from my day and age, if I am talking and I have no awareness of the sciences of my age, social sciences, intellectual sciences. If I am talking and I have no awareness of philosophy or social theory, how am I preaching the path of my Lord with wisdom? If I am telling you what Islam is about is don't show your hair, Straighten your hijab. Do this word. Do this dhik. Do, what is, what, where is the hikmah? And good advice. Sound advice. Isn't sound advice anchored in social practices? It's a mixture of social practices and morality. If I don't understand ethical theory and I don't understand society, how do I preach with wisdom and sound advice? And if you talk to them, talk to them in goodness and kindness. Because Allah is the one who controls who is guided and who's not. Allah knows who's guided and who's not. And if you punish, punish pro proportionately as you have been punished. In other words, 
Don't ever your response to injustice cannot be disproportionate. وَلَئِنْ صَبَرْتُمْ لَهُوَ خَيْرٌ لَكُمْ But being patient and forgiving is always better than retaliation. وَصْبُرْ وَصْبِرْ وَمَا صَبْرُكَ إِلَّا بِاللَّهِ وَلَا تَحْزَنْ عَلَيْهِمْ وَلَا تَكُوْ فِي ضَيْقٍ مِمَّا يَمْكَرُونَ إِنَّ اللَّهَ مَعَ الَّذِينَ اتَّقُوا وَالَّذِينَ هُمْ مُحْسِنُونَ Be patient, persevere. And don't be sad that they're not guided. إِنَّ اللَّهَ مَعَ الَّذِينَ اتَّقُوا وَالَّذِينَ هُمْ مُحْسِنُونَ Do you want to know who God is with? God is with those who is mindful, who are mindful of God, but who do good. God is not with those who do bad. God is not with those who commit injustice. Okay. So let's take a step back and answer the question, why Ibrahim? Surah Al-Nahl is saying, Understand you have a charge. You Muslims are going to build a society. A society has to be anchored on proper pillars. The pillars are laid out in Surah Al Nahr. The pillars revolve around a core value of Iman and justice. Justice towards the environment, justice towards the mountain, the rivers, the animals, justice towards the bees. But beyond that, Your guiding value is al-adl, justice and ihsan and goodness. And doing everything to honor family relations so that families don't break apart. And avoid injustice and avoid ugliness and inequities and understand that coercion and persecution is wrong. And understand that nothing takes away the blessings that Allah gifts upon a people like coercion and persecution. It doesn't say that here, but we know elsewhere from what the Quran says that persecution and 
and coercion breeds hypocrisy and lies. And understand that you must honor your promises and honor your trust. And you cannot be opportunists. Issues of trust cannot be subject to the manipulations of self-interest. If you are, again, the tapestry of your society will come apart. You will build, you will think you're building, but you're building nothing. Because you don't have morality. You don't have ethics. These are the pillars upon which you build society. But also understand that the principles are anchored around the founding father Ibrahim who reached belief in the oneness of Allah through innate morality. And that the question is who is following in the path of Ibrahim? It is not those who believe that they are God's chosen people because of their ethnicity. It is those who follow the morality of Ibrahim. So as a people, are you the inheritors of Ibrahim? Well, it depends on whether you can build the society anchored upon the pillars and ethics. Or whether you don't and then the ceiling, the roof will collapse upon your heads. And then you are not worthy of Ibrahim. And I know Allah is speaking to the Muslims, the Prophet and Muslims said, I know this is hard. But you want to know the secret? The secret is wisdom and sound argument. And sometimes it will be necessary to meet offense with an offense, but always be just. And forgiveness is always better. Now that you've got your marching orders, you are ready to get the command for Hijrah, which will come and you are ready to attempt to build your society. Now, an-nahl, which we know is necessary for human existence, builds a hive, and the hive produces a natural goodness. Yanfa'unas, honey, benefits human beings, benefits everyone. Can you human beings build a hive that produces goodness like the honey or are you going to produce poison 
if you don't follow these rules, you will produce poison. Then bees are no guidance for you. Surat al-Nah is a revolution. Is a revolution. It boggles my mind that somehow for hundreds of years we lost the meaning of Surat al-Nah. You to get people say read this, read this, ayah this, but no, it's not an, it's not a little ayah here, a little ayah there. From beginning to end. And now let's go to the very first ayah. Ata Amrullahi God is going to give you the constitutional formula for your charging, God is going to give you your charging orders. God is going to give you the formula for building an ethical society. But don't rush it. That's what it's talking about. It's not about the hereafter. It's not about conquering Mecca. It's not about the Battle of Badr. It's about the message delivered by Surah Al-Nahl itself. It's like saying, pay attention. We're going to give you some very heavy commands, but, but it requires patience. Because if you don't pay attention, you're not going to get it. And that is Surah Al-Nahl. Alhamdulillah, Alhamdulillah. Okay, well, we peel ourselves up off the floor. <laughs> Please feel free to send through questions, and we'll collect ourselves. Um, can I, before we take a break, can I just say one thing? Of course. Okay. Notice in Surah Al-Baqarah, which is revealed later, what does Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala say about Ibrahim? إِذْ يَرْفَعُ إِبْرَاهِيمَ الْقَوَاعِدَ مِنَ الْبَيْتِ وَإِسْمَعِيلَ رَبَّنَا تَقَبَّلْ مِنَّا إِنَّكَ أَنْتَ السَّمِيعُ الْعَلِيمُ Surah Al-Baqarah verse 127 Allah says when Ibrahim raises the pillars for the house which we understand is the Kaaba which is true but immediately it reminds you of the message of Surah Al-Nahr Ibrahim, the builder of the house. And Surah Al-Nahl is about building the house and constructing the pillars of the house. It's, it's mind-boggling. Once you see it, your life is transformed. It's never the same. Okay, now we can take a break. <laughs> Okay, we'll be back in a little bit. Send your questions through. Alhamdulillah.